Welcome to the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Expert PK and Newbie Podcast, the podcast where each week we take a passage of the Bible, we read it together, we read it with you, and we discuss it, getting the three different perspectives of, of three different people. Hello, everyone. How are, you, how are you all doing? Well. Well? Good. Good. I've as, as always, I've got with me... Lachlan Miller, our resident expert, Hello. Morgan Carter, our newbie, our person who is newer to faith, and myself, Joshua Lee, our PK pastor's kid. How's everyone's week been? Uh, mine's been really excellent, actually. Um, uh, I have spent the weekend away at our young adults camp for church, and so it was a really excellent weekend in the community of about 100 or so people. We heard some really excellent Bible talks from Exodus which has me excited to finish Genesis mm. and then maybe one day work our way into Exodus. <laughs> we might get there. But yeah, regardless, like honestly, off the back of a really excellent weekend. Oh, good. No, it sounds sounds busy, but like a good busy. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Morgan, how are you going? Is it also <laughs> 40 degrees in Melbourne or is that just Sydney? Oh. No, it's not that warm here. It's your average Monday. I'm knackered already. Can't wait for Friday. <laughs> <laughs> a peek behind the curtain. We're recording this at the end of the working day on Monday. So. Mm, normally we do morning recordings, mm. but this is our mm. first after work recording. Yeah, so we'll see the how dedication. we go. Yeah. <laughs> dedication to the cause. And Josh, how are you? Good. Uh, um, yeah, doing doing well. It's uh, again, like I think we're all saying, just busy, but a good a good busy, just filled with uh, just lots of different little things, different aspects. My father's just sort of finished up his placement, and so moved into his. Well, he will eventually move into his new placement, but he's now my parents are now living uh, up up north Sydney area, and so we helped help them move. And um, <laughs> I don't know where I was going <laughs> with that sentence. No, I'm like. <laughs> He helped yeah. them move and therefore had a busy weekend. I yeah, know. yeah. Help help them move, and then we had our first uh, Sunday where my parents weren't there, so we're sort of running around making sure the all the tech and 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 we had communion as well, so making sure we had communion ready to go. And uh, we only had a couple, just two minor tech issues, so wasn't um, wasn't the end of the end of the world. We're still able to do it as normal. So all things considered, we actually did really well on just getting a, just a normal service as if nothing had changed. Ah, proof you don't need a pastor. No proof. Well, <laughs> we'll see on the long run how that goes, but you know, it was, um, no, it was, a, it was a good start to a sort of a new season of the church. Hmm. Well, let's crack into it. Uh, what chapters are we doing, Morgan, today? So we are doing Genesis chapters two and three today. Today's passage comes from the book of Genesis chapters 2 and 3. These chapters centre around Adam and Eve who initially live in the Garden of Eden before their disobedience throws God's ordered creation into chaos. So just to sort of recap last episode, so we looked at uh, chapter 1 of Genesis and this is more just the account of creation and we sort of went through and unpacked the seven days, mm -hmm. all the way from day one to day seven, where God rested. And now we're sort of coming up to, as we go into chapter two and three, looking at the creation of humans. Which leads me to my first question for the table. When do we think Genesis 2 is based? That's a good question. Very early. <laughs> <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> Both answers I would 100% agree with. The well, your initial like sort of like reading this like in you know it's a book so in its book form you would I would automatically go well chapter two comes after chapter one so immediately after hmm. that is when the the events happen but sometimes we've seen you know there's great spans of time between chapters or books within the Bible. However, to answer your question of when God actually created man, is that the is that the well? My question is, when do you think Genesis two is based? Okay, so verse seven. <laughs> yes. <laughs> then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. Mm -hmm. Isn't it on the sixth day when He created animals? That's when He doesn't it say there that He also created humans? Yeah. So isn't technically chapter two happening on the sixth day? That has been the classic Christian interpretation, mm. is that Genesis 2 is a flashback to what is happening on day six. Not necessarily flashback, if not more of a zooming in to get the details. Mm. Now, it probably won't surprise you to hear that not everyone agrees with that. <laughs> what? Crazy. 
Some people, um, John Walton would be one of them, says that this is at a later date. His argument is that uh, the sentence that starts this section that we're looking at, which is, this is the account of the heavens and the earth. Now, that same sentence appears 11 times in the book of Genesis. It actually is the way that you can split Genesis into 12 unequal yet fairly self-contained parts. And so it's a really, really important title. But every time that title appears, it refers to what comes after. So, for instance, when we read later on in Genesis that this is the account of terror, it, we then read the story of Abraham, Terah's child. When we read this is the account of Noah, that's actually the section that is about Noah's sons. And so John Walton's argument is when we read this phrase here that this is the account of the heavens and the earth, what we must be reading about is what came after the creation of the heavens and the earth. Now, that has lots of implications. That, for instance, means that Adam and Eve are not the first humans that were created on day six, mm. which could lead to a whole different discussion that I might put on hold for just now. I think we will definitely get back to it. Um, but those seem to be the two main options is this is either going back to day six, just giving us a, a zoomed in version, or this is some time later. And I think we will figure out an answer to that later when we come to talk about Adam and Eve and historicity and our views of human origins. Mm. But for now, maybe let's just work through the rest of chapter two before we get too sidetracked. Yeah. In verse four, it says, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, in chapter one, we only saw God referred to as God. Now, that word God is the general word for God that is found in most of the cultures in that area. However, the word Lord there is the name Yahweh. It's the name that is revealed specifically to Moses at the burning bush as the name of our God. And so we start off Genesis 1 with this kind of vague general, the God, whoever that is, this one singular God created everything. Hmm. But now as we start Genesis 2, it's the God, the Lord God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, like his specific personal name is now in effect. And I just always think that is worth pointing out. And we, we know that from the original translation. So for us, it's Lord, but would the original translation be Yahweh? Yeah. So whenever we see the word Lord in the Old Testament, um, when it's referring to God, mm. um, out of respect, we translate it the Lord yeah. instead of Yahweh. But mm. that is the way we're meant to see it. Yeah. And then when we see the tree of life created and it's talking about good and evil, is that like the first time we see like the differentiation between good and bad? Yeah, in a moral sense, I guess so, yeah. So those are, just to clarify, two different trees. It's the tree of life, comma, and then the tree of the knowledge of good of evil. So those are the two different trees. Mm. I've always sort of put it together as one. Yeah, that's what I read it as, one tree. <laughs> it, it probably tells us that we should probably pay more attention to what we're reading. <laughs> <laughs> read a little bit more yeah. carefully. Because I think the tree of life only really appears twice in scripture. Mm. It appears here at the very beginning after Adam and Eve's sin, which we'll get to in a little while. Um, God says, I need to kick them out of the garden because otherwise they'll now eat from the tree of life. So clearly the tree of life is the thing that is providing them eternal life. Mm. Now, when it comes to my view of humanity, I, th I think we were created mortal. Like we are literally made from dust and every other time the Bible refers to man being created from dust, it's as an image, as a metaphor of man being mortal. And so I think from the very creation moment of humanity, it's that we are mortal, but God provided something so that we could have a relationship with God forever. And that something was the tree of life. Mm. I think that was something special about that tree that would allow humanity to live forever. Now, God cuts off access to that by the end of Genesis 3 and we then see it reappear for the second time in Scripture in the last chapter of Scripture where we are told in the new mm. heavens, the new earth, that the tree of life is planted on both sides of the river in the new creations. When you were just saying about dust and then looping on life too, I think it's interesting like you start as dust and you end as dust if you get cremated. Mm. Mm. 100%, yeah. yeah. Like, or even if you don't get cremated, eventually your body will crumble yeah. to dust. It just takes longer. Mm, it's like when you know mm. you go to funerals, it's like from like ashes to ashes, mm. dust to dust. If we, we like, and it's saying here we were we were from the ground, and from the ground we will mm. go back to. Um, and that plays nicely um, for myself into the whole like energy and matter sort of just forming from one thing to the next. And I won't go too far down that rabbit hole, but <laughs> uh, but there's something unique and special about humans too, because mm. they're not just the dust; they are the breath of life, God's very breath. It's true. Which means that we are just, we are more than just material. 
we mm. have some type of special spiritual God-breathed element as well. Now, we started this whole discussion because we we're talking about the two different trees. So we talked about the tree of life. Then we have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Quite a mouthful. What do we think it is? This is the apple tree. <laughs> In all the, the popular... shiny, enticing apples yeah. from my kid's Bible picture yes. book. Yes, in all the popular interpretations, it is a very nice looking apple tree. That is true. <laughs> it's always a red. It's red as well. It's not like a different type of apple. Maybe it was a Granny Smith. And then is there a snake? There is, but that's not been mentioned yet. If we just stay Genesis 2 before we jump to 3 too soon, we have this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is a weird tree to put in the garden, if I do say so myself, especially if the one and only rule you're going to make as God is don't eat it. Which I've got a question about that, but I'm just, I just don't want to go past the, the original question of what is the, the tree of, the not like the knowledge of good and evil, which is just all knowledge of like everything. Well, they ate it. Did they become omniscient? No, they sort of came aware. And I don't want to say self-aware because they already were self-aware. Hmm. I agree. And they were also already morally responsible. Yes, because they clearly said we shouldn't do that. Yes, so they already had morals. So what? Mm, so what is it? Because it's it's got to be this big thing, right? Like God wouldn't just say you've got free range of everything except for that one thing. So it's got to be important, right? I also think it's like interesting that it's in a garden. Like they've mentioned garden, so it's like there's choices and they're focusing on this one tree. Mm. Yeah. Like it's like options but they've they've mentioned garden but then yeah they talk about this one tree mm. or two trees but like the good and evil one yeah, yeah. like adds to that weight of of they they could have picked mm. any other tree literally but... any other tree including the tree of life mm. which by the conversation we just had was essential for them to eat at some point i don't i mean i don't know it's such a hard question because the bible never properly explains what this tree is or does most bible commentators will just say that it's just by eating from something you're told not to you now have moral experience for the first time like before this moment they had no experiential knowledge of disobedience and so it almost doesn't matter what this tree actually achieved or what it was if it even was anything extra special apart from the fact that by commanding them not to eat from it god put in front of them the ability to make a morally bad decision. So it's the tree of consequences. Almost, yeah. Because mm. for the first time in an experiential way, they can distinguish between good and evil. Because mm. we're saying they already have a moral sense. Yes. But now by experience, they've done something they were told not to do, which also means they now know what good is because they know that's the difference from this. And so there may be extra properties of the tree when when we get to heaven and ask God exactly about it. But for now, I think the importance of the story is on the fact that they're not meant to eat from it. You just imagine like the trial and error and like what's going to happen. Like you just wouldn't know. I'm sure God, as in the trial and error of accidentally eating from the wrong tree or like, yeah. I'm sure God pointed it out very clearly, which is the one tree they weren't allowed to eat from. Yeah. You've picked, you've picked, you've, you've got your basket, you've picked all the different sort of apples and everything. And you're like, Oh no, which one was it? <laughs> <laughs> it's mixed in there some way. Uh, but like as we as we go through it, like like later, we see that they didn't do that and it was an active mm. act. It wasn't an accident. I think that yep. puts more emphasis on the story of you act they actively went out of their way to do it. Now obviously we'll get to everything around that. Where does Eve come in? Like, I've read this like 27 times and I cannot see it. The woman is first mentioned in verse 22. She's not given the name Eve until the last verse of chapter 3, which is why you may not have seen it. It's just woman. Mm. And in verse 18, it's, oh, yeah. it's saying okay. like the Lord God. I was God. looking for like, here comes Eve or like Eve is here. It just says the woman. So shall we so, shall we talk about the woman? <laughs> the woman. It's kind of nice of God being like, oh, this man shouldn't, you know, be alone. Just have someone there with them. Like, is fifteen kind of a bit of what we see now? Is like all the man should be the leader and working. So verse fifteen is an instruction initially just given to the man. Yes, given to Adam, but later on, after the creation of Eve, I think that is meant to apply to humanity as a whole. And so later on, Eve, in referring to you're afraid to eat from any tree in the garden. She takes that command that was only given to Adam and applies it to herself. And so if she's happy to apply that bit of the Lord's command in verse 16 to herself, then I'm assuming she's also happy to apply verse 15 to herself because I think verse 15 is the reason she was created. And what I mean by that is God creates this man in a garden and says, 
you are to work it and take care of it. And then God says, it's not good for him to be alone. He needs a helper. Like he needs someone who can help him in this task. Mm. I think the task was beyond Adam. And so God initially sends a whole bunch of animals to him and says, any of these going to do the job? <laughs> the puppy's sitting there wagging its tail. And God, Adam goes, eh, it's not going to help me. No. And God goes, ah, so what you need is a proper helper. So helper is better translated as helper matching him. Or in other words, a helper who supplies what he lacks. And so Adam needed someone who was an equal partner, but also a perfect counterpart. And I think that's what we get with the creation of woman, is someone who is an equal partner in this creation mandate, but also someone who perfectly complements Adam Mm. and his skill set. And we see the word wife. Yeah, we do. We do. So we see marriage. Well, yeah, so we're meant to see this whole event of the creation of Eve as some type of beautiful first wedding ceremony. Mm, Because Eve then refers to Adam as her husband as well later on in the story. Yeah, we're meant to see this as their wedding moment. Mm. And the the creation of of Eve is quite different to the creation of Adam. Yeah. Where Adam is being sort of conjured up by dust and created from from the ground. Mm. Eve is from a rib Mm. off of Adam. Yep. Yep. A rib out of his side. Can I, I just want to tell you a quote that I found that I thought was actually really beautiful. Mm. Uh, This is by Matthew Henry. And he says, not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be loved. No. I thought it was actually really beautiful. Like there's something about being joined at the side, joined at the hip that expresses a beautiful equality. Yeah, no, that's just something like and out of every... marriage is. Yeah, like out of every bone, it could have been any, any like, because it's saying it's a rib, right? So mm. it's any bone. So it could have been any bone in the body, but it is from the side. Mm. That is quite nice, isn't it? Mm. And then at the very end of chapter two, they're both naked but felt no shame, which mm. is, I think, just suggesting that they're really at ease with one another. Like, this is a the first married couple... And they are so without fear, uh, without worrying about what the other person will do, but actually just perfectly aligned and comfortable with each other in this paradise garden. It's kind of nice that Adam then goes, at last, the, you know, the mm. man like, it was wanting this to happen as well. It's not um, sort of like talking about this sort of perfect situation, this sort of harmony that's that's being created here. Even Adam, this this man is is sort of exclaiming that, you know, he also is is wanting wanting this and not sort of going, no, I don't want you here. I can do this all on my own or whatever. It's also like sort of welcoming it in. So what's this big question you have? The big question I have is, were Adam and Eve real historical people? Hmm. That's, a, that was, that's, that's interesting because I've got, I've got a similar sort of line of question of like, is this actual historical people or is it all just a metaphor or or is it sort of more poetry or poetic sort of sort of writing well i think we can dive into this in a few different ways um firstly does anyone know the common scientific understanding of how humans came to be like let's pretend we're not looking at the bible right now what, what are sort of like the facts of modern science when it comes to humanity they're like atoms from an exploded star oh yeah you're going real <laughs> way back yeah okay sure <laughs> Dinosaur eggs? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we we kind of cool if we were from dinosaur eggs. Hey, but... sure. Big bang happened. <laughs> particles create the universe. Earth is there. Dinosaurs are there. Later, humans come along. Um, sort of, sort of from primates. So from from monkeys, sort of thing. Yep, as in Homo sapiens and primates share a common ancestor. Mm. Yep, there was so... a common ancestor somewhere that had two kids. One eventually became humans and one eventually became monkeys. Sort of, and then sort of just going backwards through evolution of starting in the, like going all the way from land animals to sea creatures to whatever that was. One-celled organisms somewhere. Yeah, and, yep. then eventually, and then flip it. So one-celled organisms all the way coming up to being what we are now. Yep. Modern geneticists will say that based on the genetic diversity of the current human population, that they can't go back any further than 10,000 individuals. In Mm. other words, there must have been an initial population of 10,000 Homo sapiens to account for our current genetic diversity. Any less than it doesn't make sense on a scientific level. The other kind of fact of human evolution is that um, the first Homo sapiens appeared in Africa 
approximately 200,000 years ago. Mm. <laughs> and so those are kind of the facts. And uh, if, if you're on YouTube, you'll now see me air quoting facts. Uh, those are the facts of human evolution. Mm. So how do we know what nationality he was? Like they were like, were they African or Asian or Alaskan? Like, how do we know? I mean, all the races we know today were just slight changes in humans living in a certain area for a prolonged period of time. So given that the first Homo sapiens evolved in Africa, I can only assume that they potentially look like modern Africans. <laughs> I can't tell if Morgan's screen froze or whether she was just like absorbing this what? brand new information saw, for the first the eyes time. Go, I saw the eyes go wide. Does that mean that Jesus was African? <laughs> no, because Jesus lived a good 190 8,000 years after the first human based on the scientific understanding. I'm so confused. So he was, he was <laughs> Middle Eastern, so more of a Middle Eastern descent and look. This isn't in my kid's Bible. <laughs> Jesus was definitely Middle Eastern. As for Adam and Eve and their nationality, if they were the first humans that appeared in Africa, which we haven't yet decided if they were, then they would have probably looked like modern Africans. I've just got him looking white, long hair, beard, Birkenstocks, toga. <laughs> well, we did all grow up in the West and that is an image fed to us for a while, but there is literally zero chance that that is what he looked like. Mm. Either Jesus or Adam. I don't know which one you were referring to right then. I don't know anymore. <laughs> all right, so that's the scientific literature that we might have to wrestle with in a moment. The biblical literature suggests that Adam was a real person. Now, we're about to, in a few chapters, in a few episodes time, read through a whole bunch of genealogies. Do you remember Matthew chapter 1, where yeah. we just read the genealogy of Jesus? We are going to read genealogies for the rest of the Old Testament that connect Adam to Abraham, and then Abraham to Israel, and then Israel to Jesus. Mm. In fact, Luke, in the New Testament, in chapter 3, literally traces Jesus all the way back to Adam. It's hard to think how some sort of metaphorical, figurative story in Genesis could also be used in a genealogy. You also have Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul uses Adam as an illustration, um, but he uses him as more than just an illustration. He suggests that the, uh, the actions Adam took had a real tangible effect on humanity, and it's hard to see how a metaphor or a, a fake story that teaches a lesson can have those real tangible impacts in humanity that Paul thinks. Mm. And I think that leads to the biggest reason I'm convinced that Adam had to be a real person, which is I think the biblical story requires a first sin. Yes. Because if we don't have a first sin, then we are left with a whole bunch of heresies to explain why the world is full of sin. And someone would have had to. Have. So if it wasn't Adam and Eve, then... Had to happen at some point. At some some point in that lineage or just going back and back and back and back and back, someone there would have had to have had to have done it. Mm. So if it either had to be Adam and Eve and they would have had to be an actual, actual people, then it would have been someone else. And if it was someone else, arguably, their names would have come up here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, you're right. <laughs> could it could it possibly be like a, like a, possibly a mixture of both? So like they were like they they were actual people, hmm. but the way this story is sort of crafted was bits of like literally happening, bits of like poetic sort of sort of the writing license. licensing of of the authorship, or just lost in sort of translation over the thousands of years. Hmm. This has been around. Well, from last episode when we were talking about our different views on creation, I very much got the vibe that we as a group are after some type of way of interpreting the Bible that sees no conflict between Genesis and current scientific understanding. Now, that's the vibe I got from us as a group. Mm. So that is the research I did during the week oh. to see if I could see what are the theories that allow both to be true. Yeah. Like, how can we hold a currently accepted understanding of human origins in Africa 200,000 years ago? How can we allow both that and the fact that the Bible requires a historical Adam who at some point represented all of humanity and is responsible for the first sin? Mm. And I came up with two valid options, in my opinion, that would be fair ways to interpret this text and hold both of those things together. Mm -hmm. And so let me tell you the two options and then see which one appeals to you both and then maybe <laughs> chat about them a bit more. Um, option one is that we have an ancient Adam. Like this story that we're reading here happened at least over 200,000 years ago. Like we have a really, really ancient story here. So we have an ancient Adam who is ancestor to all. The second option 
is that we have a recent atom who is a representative of all. And those are the two options that I see valid. Now, I should probably explain both of them a bit more, but initial mm. reactions. Morgan, what's your initial reaction? What do you like? Ancient atom, ancestor to all, or a recent atom, representative of all? Ancestor to all, I think, makes more sense to me. Yeah, fair. Absolutely. Josh? I can see both being the case. You'd probably have to just expand slightly. Like ancient Adam, that's sort of just, I think that's a bit self-explanatory of what we see here. More recent, I get it, but I but I would probably just need a bit more explanation of what you're referring to. Yeah. Well, let's start with the ancestor one. Adam could be one of the first humans that evolved in Africa. He could have been leader of that tribe of first humans that appeared and then be responsible for the first sin. Um, William Lane Craig is a proponent of this view. His book, Quest for the Historical Adam, is worth picking up if this is a viewpoint you'd like to explore more. He actually argues that Adam wasn't even a homo sapien. He was actually a, let me read this right, Homo heidelbergensis, which is a species of human that lived 750,000 years ago. Mm. So he argues that that was Adam, and we have retained a story about the first person, the first human, who was actually a slightly different species to us. The reason I have a slight issue with this theory is that the way the Bible describes Adam describes Adam and more specifically his children is that they are farmers. They are herdsmen. Like Cain and Abel, that is literally their professions. And the first evidence of this is from 8,000 years ago. Not longer, not 200,000 years ago. The first humans were not farming. Not 750,000 years ago, those humans definitely weren't farming. Mm. So the the only way around that to hold this view is to say, ah, the author of Genesis just took what would have been familiar to his readers and explained Adam in that way, even though there's no way Adam was a farmer in the Middle East, which is how it seems to be described in the text in front of us. Mm. Because just quickly to unpack that, Mm. so humans were first hunters. Hunter-gatherers. Hunter-gatherers, and then later developed the technology of farming. It wasn't, rather than like sort of our common view of like, well, they hunted and also farmed at the same time, that was ancient people. There was a sort of a timeline of when technology sort of was invented. And if you want, like, even if you, like, it's funny to call farming an invention. But it is, yeah. But yeah. 8,000 BC is the earliest possible date for farming being invented. Mm. The first evidence we have of humans stopping their hunting and gathering lifestyle, settling down in settlements so that they could tend a crop. Mm. And so an ancient Adam could not have been the farmer that we see described in the early chapters of Genesis. Mm. Mm. But maybe the author was just using language his readers could understand. Yeah. Which then leads us to our second option, which is a recent Adam who's representative of all. Now, the story of God in the Bible is him choosing individuals for tasks. Mm. Now, Adam and Eve could have just been the first humans God invited into relationship with him. As the first humans in relationship with God properly, they could have represented all of humanity in a priestly sense. Mm. Like as we hit later in the Old Testament, we see that priests represent all the people before God. In the same way that Jesus is our great high priest now, represents us before God. Mm. And so in the same way, Adam and Eve, as literally the OG priests, the OG people in relationship with God, they, as our representatives, had a relationship with God, but also sinned. And so therefore, an Adam who was a farmer in about 8,000 BC in the Middle East, exactly as the text seems to describe, could have been this first human. Mm. Um, There's several people that are proponents of this, John Walton, look up his book, The Lost World of Adam and Eve. He particularly argues for this. Joshua Swamidas on the genealogical Adam and Eve also argues for a variation of this. Um, Those are just a few places to go if you want to pursue this more. But what are our thoughts of this from the table? I'm so tired and my brain's like cooked with what I just heard. I'm I'm still getting over the whole idea that Adam was probably black. (laughs) I know, I'm just so confused. Well, he's only black if he was an ancient Adam. If he was a recent Adam, he was just a Middle Eastern man. So, t- taking the um, that second one, how did you how, do, how was that described again? The, I described it as a recent Adam, a representative Adam. of all. So, taking the idea of a recent Adam, the question that I would have though, so if that's so, if it's a representative, mm. and then sin comes into into the world after that, mm-hmm. what about everyone prior? Yep. To it, and how does that so? If, if we're also saying, though, 
Adam and Eve, prior to them eating the fruit, had moral judgment, Mm -hmm. thus meaning everyone else had moral judgment. What about everyone that, you know, went about their life and did whatever they were doing then? Why is it then at this point, so let's say God then chose these two people, why these two people? Why then Why then create sin after that if Mm. sin technically, like I say technically, wasn't in the world beforehand? Mm. If it, if it was. Let me read Romans 5.13 for us. And I'm jumping way forward in the story here, aren't yeah. I? To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Uh-huh. In other words, sin is not charged until accountability comes into the world, until God specifically said what was right and wrong, until he gave that first law. The very first law was do not eat from the tree. Before that moment, he did not charge sin to anyone's account. Mm. That is the straightforward interpretation of Romans 5.13, which is otherwise a very hard verse to understand. So he's sort of saying, well, okay, they're, they're doing their thing up until God's come around and going, okay, so here's the order and structure. Here's my law. Mm. And that's when the consequences of God's law kicks in. Because he's finally introduced a law or he's told the people that there mm. is a law. Yeah. So they're and now sort of, they actually have something to break. Yeah. So they're sort of mingling. So they're potentially they're mingling around, doing their thing, and then God comes in and goes, okay, this is the rule. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as humans start to evolve, I hold that free will is a very important part of humanity. And so we were probably using that to be awful from the very, very beginning. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't charged as sin until there was accountability, until there was a law to measure up against. Mm. Romans 5.13 suggests that its sin is not counted yet until law arrives. And and we could, this could also sort of explain, well, cognitively speaking, going through sort of um, the generations of, of human and getting to the sort of the point where the brain, this could be the point where the brain could cognitively understand to the extent God wanted us to understand mm. right and wrong. That is actually C.S. Lewis's argument. Ah, C.S. Lewis holds basically that viewpoint that we've just articulated and says that at some point, the human being, upon both its psychology and physiology, a new kind of consciousness, which could say I and me, it could look upon itself as an object which knew God, which could make judgments of truth, beauty and goodness, which was far above that of previous versions. Mm. I like that. Uh, Yeah. So sort of discussing it, it makes it makes sense in in my brain, but it it makes sense for both arguments, mm. if that makes sense. And again, these are only the options if you're someone who wants to hold modern scientific theory about human origins and Genesis two as both being absolutely true. Now, if you're someone who's prepared to give up one of those two things, then you have a different range of interpretations available to you. But I think for the fact that what I got from this group last episode is very much a desire to see both of those true, then I think those are the two options before us. Mm, That's quite interesting. It's good food for thought. Mm. I like it. So, Morgan, you initially said the first one stood out to you. Any change in that? You sticking to it? Sticking to an African Adam? Yeah. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) If I had to be pushed, I would probably lean towards Mm. option two, a recent Adam, Middle Eastern farmer, representative of all, who lived about eight to 10,000 years ago. I think that's where I would currently land, but I've held such a variety of viewpoints on this, Mm. and it's only because I've done a lot of research in the last few weeks in preparation for this episode that I've started to... uh, change and then solidify my viewpoint on it. Mm. And and we could sort of, as, as we said last episode, discuss this until the cows come home, like mm. really try and unpack and work out and try and put the puzzle pieces exactly perfectly together. But the point, I think, and the greater point is not to get so hung up about it, but mm. like we saw in the first episode, you know, it's God's glory and his in his and his creation and here it's his law yeah and what we get from genesis 2 outside of trying to make it work with modern science is god is the one who created humanity he gave us a mandate he mm. said that we couldn't do that mandate alone he initiates marriage mm. like those are some ground breaking new things for the original readers of this text for us we probably assume all of them but these are essential background and understanding to the way we view the world and the way that we live as Christians in the world. Mm. Like that 
we can't go past what the text is trying to teach there and is definitely those things. 100%. And I think we get up to the serpent now. Yeah, now we're allowed in Chapter 3. I'll let us in Chapter 3 <laughs> we're, 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 we're just so close. <laughs> I think it's interesting using a serpent because it's like a sneaky animal. Like it's <laughs> We think of it as like a sneaky animal. Mm. Would you say a crafty animal? Yes. Where'd you get that word from? <laughs> <laughs> Straight from the NIV. <laughs> Mine one says the shrewdest Ooh. of all animals. I or think wild what is animals, I should say. important is the original Hebrew word there doesn't carry kind of the negative moral connotations that the word shrewd or crafty hold for us today. Mm. It's purely suggesting intelligence. Mm. And so it, the, this passage, like chapter three, starts with like morally neutral. It's not saying the serpent is evil in that first verse. It's just saying this serpent, which is explicitly one of the creatures God created. It's one of the wild animals. Mm. So really should be below humanity in the social hierarchy. But the, <laughs> one of these animals, like it's, it's very intelligent and that is going to introduce something into our story. Yeah. I mean, there, there are multiple thoughts going through my head, but one of them going, well, we like to sort of say that this serpent is Satan, mm -hmm. but nowhere in this text here is it's actually specifically saying that it is. Correct. Like, have we come to the to the point of under like have we come to the point of understanding going through the entire book that it was, or was it something else? So I remember having a Bible college lecturer who argued that um, to the original readers of this text, they would have seen the serpent as a chaos creature, mm. which in ancient mythology was a creature that partially belonged to the sphere of the divine and partially belonged to the sphere of a normal everyday creature, and these kind of creatures in ancient mythology were not necessarily evil, but they were always mischievous. They were always destructive. And so he was arguing that this is a chaos creature, which the original readers would have really understood what that is. Now, thankfully, as Christians, we don't have to just assume what the original readers would have heard <laughs> because in both Romans 16 and Revelation 12 and Revelation 20, it is explicit that the serpent of Genesis 3 is Satan. So... Until the New Testament, we have no confirmation, but the New Testament is exceptionally clear that this is Satan. Yeah. I did not know that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing we do this podcast then. <laughs> the, and I guess the other, the other thought I have whilst we're sort of on this early stages of, of the serpent and its interactions with Ad, Adam and Eve is, again, like what you just, you, you, you mentioned this, Lockie, of saying, well, God actually created all the animals. Mm -hmm. Why create this? shrewd, cunning, intelligent animal that is about to sort of try and manipulate our two heroes in the story. Like if, if God's making this perfect world, why, why even have an animal that's capable of doing this? I actually had this exact question in my scripture class this week. Oh. So I led a scripture class with a bunch of year sixes and I did a Q&A with them. And one of them asked, why did God not kill Satan immediately? <laughs> yeah, it's a fair point. It was like, which, well... which is similar to what uh, you just said, Josh. Hmm. The answer I gave, and I, I wish I had more time to think about it than just now, would be that Satan, this serpent, whoever it is, would have had an original place and purpose in God's plan. That was obviously not to bring it all crumbling down. There was hmm. some sort of original important place in mm. the plan for Satan. But I think that God values free will very highly in yes. all his creatures. So for instance, like we may choose a different hierarchy of values. We may say, hey, I would take away someone's free will if it was going to cause someone else harm. But in however God orders his values, he actually values the ability to make decisions higher than even the destruction that can be caused by those free decisions. Mm. Now, he does judge us on those bad decisions, but he's still something in his hierarchy of morals and values says the ability to make decisions, even ones I really don't like, it's important for you to be able to make that. Yeah, yeah, and it's sort of like it's in the same breath of saying, "Well, I've put this tree here, and I've specifically told you not to. You mm. now have you now have a moral choice here yeah. to break or or not break the law that I've just given." Same thing with with the serpent here of like, "Well, you now have the choice to listen to what the serpent's mm. saying or not listen to the serpent saying, but it, or or you know, just even just then going through with." With the actions, hmm. you're still you're still allowing Adam and Eve to have a have a choice in it, because it's not like it it said that it's not like that the serpent took the took the apple and then 
forced it down their throats <laughs> no. or, or then like took the apple and then blamed it on Adam and Eve, it was still Adam and Eve's fault. Yes. So where it says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, does that kind of start the idea of temptation, like thinking about it but knowing that something bad could happen? From the serpent. Like planting that seed in the other person's mm-hmm. like, oh, surely, surely this won't actually happen to you, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because the serpent's technique here is interesting. He starts with a super exaggerated question of, did God really say you must not eat from any tree? And it's like, well, no, mm-hmm. that leaves like, no, that's wrong. Like I'm allowed to, I'm allowed to eat from anything except this one tree. But then she says, I'm also not allowed to touch it, which God never said. And so she is almost the very first Pharisee by introducing an extra law to help her keep God's one law, which is <laughs> God's one law is don't eat from the tree. And she introduces the rule in her own mind of therefore don't touch it. Mm, yeah, to try and even just like, if I don't think about it, then I'm yeah. not going to be tempted. I'm not even going to be tempted. Like to putting try. an extra barrier up. Mm. But then instead of just being sneaky and doing a few half lies, the serpent's first like flat out big, huge lie is, nah, you're not going to die. Like that's his huge lie, direct contradiction of God. And you're right. Like that is his first big obvious lie. That's I think it starts to turn the tide in the temptation of Eve. Then he kind of uses and you'll be like God trying Mm. to tempt him with that. And that's like a big thing to use in this situation. So it's like almost like trust me, you'll be like God. Yeah, yeah, he's holding you back. Mm. He doesn't want what's best for you. Yeah, I know what's best for you. Yeah, it's probably important to point out that both Adam and Eve are both right here in this conversation. It's just Adam standing there silent as a doorpost. <laughs> yeah, like, come on, Adam, you could have you could have interjected at any point. <laughs> Say anything you want, please. And then and then he throws Eve under the bus. Yes. Later. Um, but we'll get to that in a second. It's interesting because they don't actually die immediately mm-hmm. from eating the apple but they do later get kicked out so that's like in a way and and eventually from old age and wear and tear from the land they pass on Mm. so it's almost in a way like well no they didn't just drop dead not an immediate death but they are immediately cut off from the tree of life which i've already Mm. pointed out is important and god literally says in chapter three i'm going to kick him out of the garden so they can't eat from the tree of life and live forever. Like, he literally says that in the text. We know exactly what the tree of life achieves, and the moment they sin, he cuts them off. And it's also probably important to point out that back in Genesis 2, when God says that in the day you eat it, you will die, rather than implying immediacy, I think it implies certainty. So it's like, in the day you eat this, you will certainly die. Like, there's a guaranteed outcome, rather than saying in the day, which is just a Hebrew way of saying when Mm. so when you eat it you will die yeah like immediately it's not that it's certainly like certainty you have you have now from your actions just sealed your fate yes but they eat it anyway Mm -hmm. they see that the fruit is pleasing to the eye (laughs) they grab some they eat it and nothing that the serpent promised happens they don't get divine enlightenment they didn't become like god shock instead they instantly realized their nakedness their eyes are opened and then they get some leaves like in the children's Bible and cover themselves up. Oh, no. Is that why you highlighted the word fig leaf? Yeah, because I recognise. I'm a very visual person. Yeah. It's like, you know, like they're, they're hiding themselves um, and covering themselves up, but then even hiding from God mm. as well. They know they've done something. Yes, instantly. Yeah, it's like, uh-oh. Um, God's not very happy. And uh, no. I think he gives them a chance to confess. Because he says, where are you? Which mm. obviously he knows exactly where they are. Yeah. So he's actually giving them a chance to come forward with what they've done. It's a funny, yeah, it's a funny request of like, but it's like, you know, like say, like when, when you're trying to keep someone accountable, but you know exactly what they've done mm. of like, so tell me what happened. Yeah. You know, trying to see if they'll actually tell you the truth or not or, or something along those lines. To me, when I read that, I think this is the first time seeing mercy and grace. From God? Yeah, nice. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Because while the man, the woman, and the snake are all about to be cursed, we see grace and mercy within these curses, Mm. which is so true. And so let's dive into them. Genesis 3 started with the serpent was more crafty than any of the other animals. And now God says, you will be more cursed, which I just (laughs) think is a really nice uh, play on words. More cursed than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly. You know, that serpent's not going to uh, uh, evolve into having... Legs. Legs or, or any uh, anything. It's just going to 
Stay on the ground. Mm. I think it's important to point out that this is probably symbolic in the sense of mm. it already crawled on the ground as a serpent. Like that was how it was designed. But now a new significance has mm. been given to that event in the same way that I think rainbows existed before the end of Noah's flood. Yeah. But upon completing the flood, God gives a new significance to what the rainbow means. I think he does the same here. So now whenever we see a slithering snake or the serpent itself moves, mm. it's reminded that, no, this, I am cursed. Yeah. And then we see the very first hint of grace. In fact, I think we see the very first gospel message in the entire Bible. Morgan, do you want to read the, the first Bible, the first gospel message in the Bible for us? So verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This, I think, points way, 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 way forward to Jesus. The one that the serpent tried to strike and did strike his heel, but ultimately he crushed the head of the serpent. Mm. So in this curse, God promises that while there's going to be a lot of conflict between humanity and the serpent, ultimately humanity will prevail and will crush the head of the serpent. And I think that's achieved by Jesus. He's the gospel. And then the woman gets cursed. And it's very unfortunate because yeah. her very name later on is going to be Eve, the mother of all. And yet that's the very thing that gets cursed here. Any comment on that, Morgan? <laughs> As our resident woman here. Yeah. <laughs> Me? Just... Seems a bit unnecessary, to be honest. A bit unfair that it's only happening to her. <laughs> Adam also gets some curses, and it's also directly related to what he was initially told to do, which is work the ground, and suddenly... Yeah, but that's, that's brutal, very yes. brutal. I, I agree, I'm not going to argue that point. Yeah, yeah. it's like that classic meme of, like, when you get to heaven, you just look over at Adam and Eve and just shake her head. <laughs> of like, why all this, like, torment that... We, we go through in life can be directly related all the way back down to sort of this first first sin. It's also um, funny how before they were side by side and meant to be like equal partners, but now it's your desire shall be contrary to your husband. There's a lot of discussion and debate that goes on around the translation of that particular sentence. Now, I went to Bible college where there was a lecturer by the name of Jansen Condren. He is an excellent Old Testament scholar and he wrote literally entire paper on what this verse means. And his conclusion after examining all the evidence is that the best translation is not a desire for your husband. It's not a contrary will to your husband, but it's return. So he says the best translation of this verse is that the woman would desire to return to her husband. In other words, she would desire the original intimacy that she once shared with Adam. She would desire that original relationship and want to return to that original relationship of side-by-side -side partnership that you just said, Morgan. But instead, he is going to rule over her. And then we get Adam's curses. Ah, painful toil. Rough. <laughs> <laughs> Which, as, as you said, Morgan, like, yeah, you know, there's there's physical pain that comes with this curse that God's given to to, to Eve. And it almost seems a bit unfair to to Adam of like, it doesn't seem necessarily too equal of where it's like, oh, you know, hardship over the land and whatever you will try and grow will just die out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> it's been Easy for you too. guys to say as boys. <laughs> yeah. oh, well. But it's still a pretty serious curse. Like, instead of having this wonderful life in a paradise garden, he's told the rest of your life is going to be very hard work. The ground will put, produce thorns and thistles. Instead of being a farmer that is enjoying life, you're going to be a farmer that works Real, real hard just to eat, just to survive. And dust you are, dust you will return. In other words, the death that I promised would happen will be your end. Then they get kicked out of the garden and we get some fun guards for that garden. Yeah. <laughs> and he calls her Eve. He does. Mm. Which means life giver. Yeah, mine says mother of all the living. It's a good name, good symbolic name. Yeah. Love it. Mm. Actually, just while we're just in that bit of the text, you said before that you saw grace all through this, Morgan. And I think we see God do another moment of grace, which is he clothes them. Adam and Eve try to wrap some fig leaves around them and God goes, okay, here's your curses. I'm going to kick you out of this garden. But as my final act of grace, I am going to clothe you. Mm. Mm. And he, he guards, which is, which is fun because I, I like this sort of, mysticism that it starts to sort of mysticism like it's only really like it's like really briefly mentioned and it's never really like too much br brought up ever again but we've you know we've got the cherubim 
Mm. And then a flaming sword. Oh, how cool is the flaming sword? <laughs> like we've got these these big sort of like imageries of like you know whatever the cherubim are. Oh, um, can can I take us to a passage of the Bible that will explain exactly what they look like and oh, freak definitely. us all the heck out? Can I get everyone to turn to Ezekiel for me? So I've just made you all go to Ezekiel chapter one. I'm about to get Morgan to read the description of a cherubim. This is what a cherubim looks like according to Ezekiel chapter one. Morgan, would you mind reading from verse five for us? And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their face and their wings. Thus their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. So Ezekiel 1 explains what a cherubim looks like. Mm. They are a humanish looking thing with four wings, four faces, only one head, but four faces, one on each side. We have an eagle face, an ox face. I just closed Ezekiel, so I can't remember what the, the other face was. And a human face. Mm. Like they are terrifying looking things, polished bronze looking feet. They shine like a flaming torch. Like a cherubim is a scary looking creature. Mm. And it's guarding now yeah, the the Garden of Eden, mm. and it's and and, and it's it, not alone. No, no, no. There's, there's never forget the flaming sword, Josh. No, no, and and sort of like now reading that description, it sort of gives you the weight of of like now. There's no way they're sneaking back in. No, no, not even like you know, not even from like if if God being all omnipotent and knowing, mm. like knowing that they were actually there if they snuck back in, but but even just to get past any sort of perimeter, there there are these creatures there guarding them. It's interesting. So I really like it when whenever we get to the sort of like touch on things like cherubim and angels and, and, and all that, because sometimes I always find that our um, like Christianity sort of gets gr- quite sort of grounded, if if you will, um, because uh, you know we 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 focus on on God and and Jesus and His salvation, rightly so. The important things, yes. The important things, and, and we don't get sort of caught up in sort of the other sort of mystical aspects of, of, of it all. But then you look at sort of other religions and different uh, cultures that have different pantheons of, of gods and creatures, and you sort of like... And it's for me, it's always fun to sort of look at like uh, that, like, you know, the Greek, Greek Roman... Uh, even the Norse god, they have all these like different like you know uh, creatures and crazy creatures, yeah, cr- um, things all all about them. And then then you know I look at my like you know my own faith and Christianity, like we're a tad bit boring. <laughs> like and and not that that's actually a bad thing because no. as I've just said, the focus is on God and Jesus mm-hmm. and the, the salvation that that and and like I said, right, rightfully so, that's the main point. But it's always fun to be like, "Ooh, we've got these fun creatures um, that, that that are about," and like, you know, it just adds to for me. It adds just to my excitement and like, sort of wanting just to know to to sink in to this book and and know more. Hmm. So I've got three exclamation points on cherubim on my notes. <laughs> I'm real glad we covered it for you, then, Josh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to start Reflections this episode. Go for it. Mm. Because I'm still shocked about the nationality thing and that he could be African. <laughs> so that's my reflection. I think I need to drop some of my ideas that I've had built in my head for a long time. Be open to different interpretations. Mm. I think one of the best things the Western Church could do is to absolutely drop the white Jesus idea. Mm. I remember I was talking to a scripture teacher who works in a school that primarily has Muslim students in it. And I was looking through her PowerPoint that she used every week. And in every picture, it was just this super white Jesus. And I challenged her. I was like, A, that's not faithful. Like, that's not a faithful interpretation of the text. But B, like the whole group that you're working with right now aren't going to see that white man as the solution to their problems. Maybe look into using some different art of Jesus. Mm. And I know Jesus is a long time removed from uh, Adam. That's many, many thousand years, but similar idea. 
And it's probably a good point to sort of to think about how has how has over the years and history and our like different cultures just sort of influenced our sort of mindsets and and thoughts and what the what the quote unquote status quo is and should we challenge it? Shouldn't we challenge it? Like. Um, sort of just digging a little bit deeper into our preconceived notions of mm. of any of any of it, not just you know the nationality thing, but any any of it that we may sort of already go into it. My takeaway is I think Genesis chapter three is here to answer our question of if the word was created very good, why is there so much pain and suffering in it? Mm. Like that is the question I think Genesis three was written to answer. And as I read through it, like. It's a question I have daily of why is there so much suffering and pain in the world? And it ultimately boils down to humanity keeps making decisions not in line with God. Mm. This is the first sin, but this is the sin that we would all commit and all do commit onwards and always. Yeah. Yeah. And I've 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 just been like we're only this is episode two. We've just gone through the first three chapters, but I'm loving every like little bit because we could easily just brush past like all all of this and say hmm. well this is what like this is the creation account this is Adam and Eve let's sort of get let's let's try and get more into genesis and sort of get get into the other well-known characters but just sort of taking the time just to sort of dissect and go into and and really understand these parts of just being being great and my takeaway but for for these two chapters is just really how god has given us free will from the very beginning he gave us the choice Hmm. And it was through our choices or through Adam and Eve's choices um, to eat eat the forbidden fruit. But it's to really like show that like God gave us this choice, this this free will. It's not that he forced us to to do anything. Hmm. We, we've got like autom- like autonomy over over our own, our own life, but in the same breath, because we have this choice, we also have the choice to follow God. Hmm. In this, and this is just even like further proving, like, or, or showing me how sort of, as as you rightfully sort of said, Morgan, the the mercy and the grace God was able to to show, whilst also being harsh and hold us accountable. Um, mm. But but God's just like wonder of like, I I do definitely have this choice to to be able to follow Him, and it is my choice. I, God's not forcing me to to believe and follow Him. I'm. I have free will to to follow him, and I am actively choosing to do it. That's that's my takeaway. Great takeaway. So as we say each week, follow us on social medias, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok to stay up to date with everything that uh, the sort of we post. If there's anything that uh, any readings that or books that uh, that we're really sort of interested in and that we've read that we want to to show you, we'll also sort of share that uh, information. Don't forget that this podcast can be listened to on any podcast platform. And if you want to see our smiling faces that we're on uh, on YouTube, it's the video format of this podcast. And share it with a friend, share it with someone who uh, hasn't listened or just share, share it around. Again, we want to continue to spread this podcast and the conversations that we have, but also we want to share the good news of this great book. Send in any questions and comments and just anything that you've gotten from this. We'd love to just see and and hear what you also took from Genesis chapter 2 and 3. We have a uh, Patreon, which uh, gives sort of more extended versions of the podcast and some extra content there. So go onto our link tree. Links are sort of uh, below as well for the video version and just uh, check out our Patreon if you're interested. It supports us and the ability to continue uh, doing this. Well, how about I just end in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, just pray and we just thank you that us three here are able to come together both in person, online, that we're able to come together, we're able to read your word and we're able to continue to discuss it and sort of really dive deep and dive into what you have for us, what you're trying to sort of bring to us. We thank you that you are able to, that you, for the creation of Adam and Eve, and we thank you for the free will that you were able to, to, to give them. And we 
We praise you, Lord, and we, we thank you for your mercy that you show us every day. We pray for all the listeners out there as they go about their business, that you are able to be with them and you are able to guide them and, and show them and reveal them what you need to and pray for all of us in the weeks ahead that you are with with us and that we are able to continue to do your will on this earth, Lord. In Jesus' heavenly name, I pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Lockie and Morgan. Thank you. And thank you, everyone at home listening and watching to us. We will see everyone next week. See you then. Bye. Bye. A Mustard Seed Creative Production.